six. By Thursday, El Porvenir had recovered from its first shock of Throckmorton's arrival, but it was still perplexed and amused. Turner had set a desk for Throckmorton in the center of the front office, where he could watch everything that went on. Promptly at nine o'clock, an hour after the office opened, he entered the room and neatly hung up his black Homburg, white muffler, and black topcoat. It was his custom not to speak to anyone until he was greeted first. Clearing his throat with a resounding ahem, he began opening the day's mail with a silver blade on which was engraved the Throckmorton crest. As Don Jorge gave Turner the most expedient-looking letters, the large stack on Throckmorton's desk consisted of advertising circulars, canned releases, syndicated mats, political diatribes, and free handouts of every kind. Throckmorton, after perusing them carefully, stacked them on his desk in a heap that kept mounting day by day. He seemed incapable of throwing anything away. The task took him all day. But with press day making its demands, Turner was too busy to pay his new publisher much attention. Checking inside page proofs against galley proofs, making up the front page, and laying out an advertisement for Helen's tea room. As he was finishing this, the first press run of the page, containing Throckmorton's revised poem, was brought into him. Set under a two-column head, the poem took a good twelve inches. Turner carried the page over to Throckmorton, pointing it out with an ink-smudged finger. A few moments after he had returned to his desk, he happened to look up. When he saw flooded him with a warm wave of compassion, almost instantly chilled by a premonition containing an element of fear and disgust. Throckmorton's arms were outspread, his hands gripping the edges of the sheet with a frenzied clutch. Over his tense, white porcelain face spread a look of inordinate pride and achievement. As Turner watched him, he drew his legs up on the chair under his pudgy body in the posture of a seated Buddha, put the sheet down on the desk, and began softly clapping his delicate hands in front of his breast. Turner stared at him as if transfixed. Throckmorton acted like a child just presented with a new Christmas toy. It was pathetic and unbelievable. Yet at the same time, his look of monstrous pride and power, betrayed by his clenched lips and jutting jaw, rang a warning in Turner's mind. Mrs. Throckmorton's phrase, the power of the press, echoed in his ears. With the guilty feeling of looking through a keyhole at something no man had the right to see, Turner tore his gaze away and returned to work. Early that morning, he had casually noticed a strange girl sitting at the morgue, taking notes. At noon, after a quick lunch with Mrs. Weston, she was still there. She was rather attractive, medium height, a compact body with plenty of curves, an open face whose rounded pinkish cheeks indicated great vitality. But her wholehearted intentness on whatever it was she was doing made Turner feel she was strictly bookish. Also, he noticed, her clothes were simple but expensive. A pleated scotch plaid skirt, cashmere sweater, and a smartly tailored jacket. There was no time to wonder who she was. The linotype was squirting lead, delaying copy for the front page. All afternoon the boys shouted and swore and did not bother to wash up for a hurried supper. It was ten o'clock when the operator began to set the remaining copy, after midnight when Turner okayed the proof of the front page. "'It's a little light on the bottom corner, but let it go,' he said warily. 
run off a couple of hundred or so for the drugstore the first thing in the morning and then knock off. One of you can come in early and finish the run. He went out scowling. Issue number one of El Porvenir under the new management had been put to bed. Next morning, he went late to work. The last press run had been finished. The papers had been addressed and were being taken to the post office. Everybody was relaxed and cheerful. It was always a good feeling, this queer sense of heroic achievement at having got out only another issue of a small, unimportant weekly, the feeling that is the greatest reward of newspaperdom. Turner lackadaisically cleared the hooks of old copy, straightened his battered desk, and settled back comfortably in his chair. As he lit his pipe, the girl who had been combing through the morgue the day before came in. She walked directly to his desk. "'Hello,' he said abruptly. "'Getting everything you want?' "'Almost,' she replied. "'I didn't bother you yesterday, but I want to introduce myself now.' "'Sure, go ahead,' he said pleasantly. "'I'm Emily Chalmers.' So that's why she had postponed announcing herself, giving herself a few days to get the lay of the land and snoop around. When he did not answer, she said quickly, I would very much like to ride down with you when you visit my mother, if you're going this weekend by any chance. I prefer not to go down alone. It might be a little awkward. Besides, I don't have a car. Turner stood up. Okay, let's go. I've been expecting you. She followed him out to his car. I'll drop by the house first, if you don't mind, he said, driving a mile out of town to his old adobe at the edge of the reservation. I'll only be a minute. Yet when he stepped inside the house, Emily was right behind him, inspecting the room with undisguised curiosity. It was the original room of what had been a large one-room adobe. The solid walls were nearly two feet thick, washed on the inside with tierra blanca. The dirt floor was packed hard and soaked with linseed oil, and turpentine, until its surface was as smooth as hard rubber. There was a conical, Indian-made corner fireplace blackened with smoke, yet this simplicity of form was choked with a careless content of furnishings and decorations. Navajo rugs, chamayo blankets, a hand-honed pine table, and a rare Spanish chest, a fetchin portrait, and a Dasberg landscape, a litter of books, Apache ba- uh, baskets, Pueblo pottery, beaded buckskins, peyote fans, boltos and santos, native handicrafts of all kinds. It was the room of a man who knew and appreciated his environment. But also, as Helen often told him, it was the trap of a man who loved it too much to leave it even for the further development of himself and his talent. Turner strode into the adjoining bedroom and began packing a small handbag. Emily stood watching him, noting the big carved four-poster bed and the goatskins on the warped pine floor. Suddenly, he looked up to see a flush spreading over her face and followed her fixed gaze to a photograph of Helen on the dresser. He snapped his bag shut and walked into the kitchen, piled with unwashed dishes. Turning around to Emily behind him, he said abruptly, "'Now, if you'd like to see the bathroom, the color of my toothbrush,' she smiled faintly. You know, I followed you in here purposely to see your house. I looked over the back issues of your paper for specific information I wanted, of course. I've also learned a great deal about you in the two days I've been in town. But the house you live in, the daily articles you use, the books you read, the pictures you look at day after day, all this tells the real story. That is, to a professional, she added primly. 
Turner stared at her, trying to fathom her unbounded gall. Professional what, snooper? I'm an anthropologist. You know, one who tries to recreate the living character of a vanished people from the material remains they leave behind them. One can use the same technique in evaluating the character of a living but yet unknown person, I've found. I'm a newspaper man myself, as you've deduced, grunted Turner. I deal with the living today, not the dead yesterday. Oh, I don't know, Emily said pleasantly. I understand you're considered something of an authority on Western Americana. Indian culture is my own special field for research, but we'll get into that later. I see. You haven't forgotten you were going to drop in and say hello to your mother after a brief separation of 20 years. Did it occur to you she's been expecting you for three weeks? The girl pivoted on a heel and walked swiftly out. They drove in silence to the plaza, where Emily asked him to stop in front of her hotel. Good, said Turner. I'll go right up to your room with you. You see, as a professional, I would like to report the color of your nightgown, the brand of toothpaste you use, the... Emily slammed the door and ran into the hotel. Turner laughed, but his amusement vanished when she returned with a porter carrying two heavy suitcases, a hat box, briefcase, and a box of books. He was supposed... He had supposed she was going down to spend a day or two with Helen, not to move in with her. Emily dispelled this latter notion as they drove out of town. El Mirasol, it's called. The map shows it to be not far from her, and the folder describes it as a comfortable guest ranch. It's all right, but not cheap. Nothing is nowadays, is it? After all, I can't walk right in on a woman I don't know, even if she is my mother. I thought I'd go right there and register first, so there wouldn't be any question about it went on Emily. Then you could take me over to meet my mother. After all, you're her best friend. I am that, he said quietly. The road dropped swiftly into the dark, basaltic gorge, twisting along the course of the turbulent river. Farther down, the whitewater rapids disappeared. The river deepened and widened between the black volcanic cliffs on each side. Turner pointed out where the little narrow gauge had puffed along the opposite bank. Look, there's a bridge left and a stretch of rails. There had been a folksy intimacy about the chilly line, an unhurried air of careless indifference, he continued, that a main line never achieved. The old wagon road winding through the little Spanish villages, the fields and orchards, was like that too. The new paved highway would never replace either of them. It was merely a way for strangers to get from one place to another. It never touched the quick of this ancient, slow-pulsed valley. Perhaps it was the nostalgia in his voice that drew out the girl beside him. She talked a little about herself, condensing her autobiography into a few terse sentences. The Chalmers family had kept track of her mother for a few years until her father had obtained an uncontested divorce. He finally had drunk himself to death, if that's what cirrhosis of the liver really meant. To escape the benevolent tyranny of her grandparents, Emily stayed away at school every winter, and majoring in anthropology and ethnology, spent her summers taking field trips. A large allowance provided her with ample means and freedom. So that's why you're here in New Mexico? Yes, research and field study. Bandelier wrote that the key to the aboriginal history of Mexico and Central America lies between the city of Mexico and the southwestern part of Colorado. That's what I want to find. A race, a country, you know, has to assimilate its past before it can evolve into the future.
this bookish assertion, expressed in anthropological terms, as she believed, suddenly revealed to Turner an unhappy, talented, and wealthy child continually escaping into school, books, and the racial, racial past of forgotten peoples, driven by an unconscious compulsion to seek out her own individual beginnings. But I wanted to see my mother too, added Emily. The older I got, the more necessary it seemed. So I finally found out where she was. Do you think she'll like me? Elmirasol did not quite justify its name. Formerly an old sprawling hacienda, it was surrounded by large cottonwoods that shut off the sun. But two wings had been added, one on each side with an open patio between, to convert it into a fairly modern guest ranch. The rooms were comfortable and cheerful. Emily chose one looking over a coral of weathered aspen poles toward the Sangre de Cristos. Then she returned to the lobby where Turner was waiting. All settled? She nodded, a look of anxiety on her face. He took her by the arm. Let's go. Seven. I was so young then. How could I ever have suspected that my mother would be the object of so much attention and that I'd be plagued with these interminable questions about my first impressions of her? Emily, looking not much older but curiously harder, frowned slightly over her cluttered desk. It was difficult to reconcile her with the young and naive but rather spoiled and willful girl she seemed when she first came to New Mexico. Between them there seemed one of these great gaps noticeable in so many persons after even a short passage of time. No such gap exists, of course. At every moment in our lives we are all that we have to be have been and will be, a seed whose growth unfolds in a pattern predestined to it from germination. Our failure to perceive any continuity only betrays how shallowly we ever know anyone, especially ourselves. Now I was too excited seeing her for the first time to notice anything striking about her. She drummed nervously on the table with her fingers, then resumed in a voice that became musingly slower. Mr. Turner stopped the car on top of the hill, as I recall, to let me see the crossing full perspective. There was the sluggish Rio Grande crawling southward past the straggle of giant cottonwoods, a narrow, rickety suspension bridge, and beyond it the canyon winding up to the flat top of the forested plateau in the Picachos of the Jemez Mountains above, a massive, top-heavy landscape in which I didn't notice at first the small adobe squatting on the bank just above the ridge. What attracted my attention was a woman emerging from the wellhouse with a filled bucket. She was bent over by its weight, her left arm upstretched as if trying to grasp the rim of the mountain for support. A woman alone and dwarfed by the magnitude and solitude of her setting. That was Helen. She must have seen or heard us crossing the bridge. When we stopped the car and got out, she was standing at the doorway. You might have supposed she'd have run out to welcome me, a daughter she had abandoned in infancy. But no, I had come 2,000 miles, and I had to take even those last few steps up to her. An unearthly light didn't radiate from her. She emphatically was not flaming like a celestial torch. But I was greatly relieved at her appearance just the same. She had come from a middle-class family distinctly commonplace compared to the Chalmers, and she had had no advantages and little education. And while my grandparents never disparaged her in front of me, 
I rather expected to find a drab waitress in a dirty apron and thick-soled shoes. But she was neatly dressed in a silk print, old but in good taste, and there was a sense of quality about her. I remember, though, that she was wearing a pair of sloppy Indian moccasins instead of shoes. I was almost up to her by then, and still she made no move. I could distinguish her creamy oval face beneath her carefully parted wings of dark brown hair. Her lips were trembling slightly. She was emotionally disturbed as I was. Then, just as she moved her head and I braced myself to look full into her soft brown eyes, I glimpsed a feather stuck in her hair. It was a woodpecker's feather with a streak of salmon pink from underside of the wing. These printed assertions that the woman at a towy crossing could speak the language of the birds are ridiculous, of course. It was just that she had something about birds. Every feather she found she regarded as a message or an omen left especially for her, and she never did anything or went any place without looking around for one. This one, as a matter of fact, she had picked up just before we got there. Charming and innocent, but not significant. I don't know why it struck me as odd this feather in her hair, and before I got my mind off it, her arms were around me, and I was looking into her warm brown eyes. My mother was flesh and blood, all right, odd as she was. You've met before, I take it, grumbled Mr. Turner. I thought I was going to have the pleasure of introducing you. That broke the ice. We went inside. The new tea room with its few tables and some bright chintz looked pitifully inadequate, not at all up to Mr. Turner's ad. The place was still just a mud hut with a pine slab privy outside. Maria and Louis came in, and Helen introduced me as her daughter. Maria clasped me to her big bosom without a word. Ha, huh, you marry all time, Louise said. It was that simple, really. There just wasn't anything to talk about. But we had a good, all-New Mexican dinner, as only she could cook it. Lamb from Luis's small flock, garnished with wild horse mint, chicos, green chilies, and Maria's paper-thin blue corn tortillas, all topped off with Helen's own chocolate cake. Mr. Turner had brought some wine for the occasion, which she didn't touch. Luis and Maria ate with us. Mr. Turner decided we'd go on a picnic next day, so Helen could rest up from the pangs of sudden motherhood, he said. We left early, Mr. Turner dropping me off at the guest ranch and going to a hotel in town so we could make an early start in the morning. And that was all. My mother was relaxed and untalkative the whole time, though I could see the quick response in her extraordinarily expressive eyes. There was a warmth about her, and yet a curious aloofness and objectivity. This is an Indian characteristic I have commented upon in my inquiry. She tapped the large volume on her desk. Helen had lived around them so long there was no reason to suppose she hadn't taken on some of their qualities. Undoubtedly, she had just suffered the first shock of that mystical experience or strange malady that possessed her from then on, but I detected no sign of it. After leaving Emily at El Mirasol that evening, Turner hesitated before driving back to the crossing. He really had intended to go to the small hotel in Española. It didn't seem quite proper to stay with Helen on the night of Emily's arrival. She might be embarrassed. Then a deeper honesty rejected this surfaced cowardice. Why the hell should Emily's arrival change his feeling for Helen or their relationship? 
The lamp was still lit, turned low, when he arrived, and Helen was in bed, lying back toward him. He undressed and lay down beside her. Putting his arm around her, he felt how inert and unresponsive she was. Asleep? No, Jack. Did she upset you? Emily? No, it was all right. For a moment they lay quietly together. Then she turned over to face him, putting her hand against his breast to hold him almost imperceptibly away. It was good of you to come back. There's a pot of hot coffee waiting for you on the table, and they made up the couch for you. He flung over to throw a look of disbelief at the prepared couch, which he had not noticed in the dim light when he came in, then straightened stiffly beside her. I knew damned well she would. You mustn't blame Emily, or anyone, Jack. It's just that I want to be alone. He sat up on the edge of the bed and poured himself a cup of coffee. What's got into you? he asked with a worried frown. I don't know, but we'll talk about it later, she said with a tender smile. Yet even her smile had the quality of an impersonal love and a strange withdrawnness. He laid down beside her again. She rolled back over away from him. She did not talk, and he forbore questioning her. After a while, he got up and went to the sofa across the room. Still, she said nothing to bridge the gap that so suddenly had opened between them. For a long time, he lay awake, hurt and puzzled at the subtle and indefinable change that had come over her. Early next morning, bolsas and baskets packed, they chugged up the canyon. Within an hour, the car had climbed so high up the narrow, winding road that on getting out to let the radiator cool, they could see the valley spread out below them. Village, pueblo, orchards, fields, and pastures, all flanked by the opposite blue rib Sangre de Cristos. Look right down at your feet, said Turner, that bare spot on the ridge where two canyons open. That's the site of the prehistoric pueblo of Atoi. For it have been named the post office at the ranch above, a Towie crossing and a Towie bridge across the river at Helen's place, and a Towie station, the Chili Lines old mail depot for the ranch. Please, let's have our lunch there, begged Emily. You promised. I promised sometime to show you a ruin, but a Towie down there, since the researchers, schoolboys, and pot hunters have got to it, is nothing but a heap of sand sifted through a sieve. Sankawi may be the place for her to see first, Jack, then share. Ridge, Pue, Tionyi, let her work to, up to them gradually. Emily listened carefully, scanning the wild and remote plateau, gashed by deep canyons, walled with yellow and pink cliffs, and shadowed by dark forests of juniper and pinyon. Turner, it seemed now, had something else on his mind besides her interest in ruins and their own picnic. He drove on up the plateau to a scatter of log buildings on an isolated mesa cut off on two sides by deep canyons from the surrounding forests of spruce and pine. In its pristine setting, Los Alamos Ranch School looked to Emily as picturesque as a postcard. The buildings ranged in size from small cabins to large three-story structures. No two were alike. They might have been dropped at random on the meadow, so perfectly were they placed. The timber work, even to her eyes, was exquisite. Each huge log in the larger buildings had cost the life of a pine. They were hand-toned, perfectly jointed, and their interstices sealed with slim, straight aspen poles. Turner named them off quickly. Edward Fuller Lodge with the big portal and a two-story dining room inside. 
the big house containing faculty offices, classrooms, dormitory for masters and younger boys, spruce cottage, quarters for older boys, the trading posts, school store and post office, the pack house, home of the first settler up here, where gear for pack trips was now stored, the carpenter shop, cabins and cottages for the help. All just for boys, broke in Emily. Turner snorted. Four, f- forty very rich boys, Greek, Latin, and the classics, a secondary and college preparatory course, dietetically balanced with the traditions of the American Old West. Out at those grain-fed horses out there, one for every boy, the first mounted troop of Boy Scouts in America, pack trips in the mountains, hunting, fishing, camping, Ashley Pond back there for swimming and skating. The boys are grouped by size and age and named for the march of trees up from below. Pinion, juniper, fir, and spruce, the last timber on the mountains, all perched up here in the mountain wilderness of northern New Mexico, a few mountain ranches off toward Jemez Pueblo, and an open range occasionally crossed by a forest ranger. Nothing else. What more do you want for a pallid city boy choking from soot and grime and boarding house hash? Write your feature article for El Porvenir about your interview, chided Helen. Run along now. We'll meet you later. Eight. The director, A.J. Connell, received Turner cordially in the big house and gave him all the brochures and photographs he needed. The ranch school, he reminded Turner, was the most distinctive school of its kind in the United States. It had been in existence under trying conditions for 24 years. Staff and students were proud of it. Turner had difficulty seeing his face. Like an erring boy called up for reprimand, he was seated in front of Connell's desk so that the light from the sunny window would glare on his own face. To escape it, he turned sideways and stared vacantly out of the small side window while he listened to Connell. Yes, it looked like a good year. Forty-two boys were enrolled, all with good family backgrounds and high scholastic standings. Why then, wondered Turner, did he sound so unenthusiastic, almost discouraged? A group of men at the corral outside caught his attention. They were throwing hitches on two-pack horses. Three other horses stood saddled with reins hanging. One man was a ranch school wrangler in dirty blue Levi's, One was obviously a forest ranger in his green whipcord, but the other two were army officers. How's hunting? he asked casually. There's always a lot of deer around. Turkey are still plentiful, and the bear are coming down. I believe we had a scare the other night. The season hasn't opened yet, Turner reminded him quietly, nodding toward the window. Don't tell me they're going hunting. Our representatives of lawful government... Connell looked out the window and frowned. Indian file, the two pack horses, and three mounted riders, scabbarded rifles slung across their saddles, were slowly plodding toward the mountains. Just looking around, I suspect, Mr. Turner. Just Taurus, United States Forest Service and United States Army Taurus on vacation. No hunting, no fishing, damn cold camping out these nights in this altitude, but excellent scenery, so new to a forest ranger. The director's frown grew deeper. What's going on up here anyway? Turner asked bluntly. I wish you would withdraw that question and not indulge in any press conjectures, Connell said slowly. 
Nothing may come of their looking around, but I am not free to talk. They looked at each other steadily. Sure, forget it, said Turner. But if they turn anything up, let me have it instead of Santa Fe or Albuquerque. I'll pass it along if you wish. This war, it keeps getting bigger and more frightful and more close. His irrelevant statement seemed somehow relevant to the conversation, but he did not develop on it. Well, I hope the school can hang on, said Turner, rising. You've got a nice setup, and I'm going to give it a spread in El Porvenir. A good little paper. We're one of your subscribers. I hope you can hang on, too, if the worst comes. I sold out a month ago, but I got out while the getting was good. Still running the place, though. Connell looked discouraged. Lunch? No, thanks. I'm on a picnic, but don't forget to call me. Turner walked out slowly, sniffing the sharp air. Something was up. It had the smell of war. The two women soon returned to meet him. Helen had driven Emily up to Water Canyon, so full of wildflowers, fringed gentians, red paintbrushes, delicate columbines, and blue and yellow asters. If we could only go on up to Valley Grande, that big volcanic crater, she murmured. I've just been telling Emily about the lavender mariposas up there. Instead, mindful of their promise to Emily, they drove down the hill and up a side canyon so that she could see Sunkawi. At the base of the mesa, Turner found a small spring. Here he set down their bolsas and baskets. As good as a place as any, what? When finally the basket was emptied and Turner put the blackened coffee pot on the fire, Helen stretched out on a blanket underneath a pine. This continual talk, it wore her out. Ever since that strange breakthrough, she wanted only to be alone, to keep grasping at that vision of reality already fading away, but whose indistinct outline of meaning still was too precious to be forgotten. Emily jumped up with the inexhaustible curiosity of youth. Come on, let's go to Tsunkawi, Jack promised. I'm just too tired, Emily, do you mind? Helen rolled over and closed her eyes. Turner groaned, stretched, and strode off with Emily. A foot trail led up the slope of juniper and pinion to a protruding rocky ledge of gray volcanic ash that ages ago had congealed into a soft, porous rock blanketing the whole upper slope of the mesa. Gently winding upward through this led a small groove, perhaps a foot wide and deep, that Turner said teasingly always looked like a small water ditch. Emily went down and excitingly ran her hands over its worn surface. It's the ancient trail itself, worn into the rock by the bare feet of the people trudging back and forth from the Pueblo on top to their springs and corn patches down below. Look at it. Think of the centuries it must have taken for bare feet to cut so deep. Oh, how beautiful. She raced ahead like a goat, putting one foot in front of the other in the ancient groove. It wound steeply upward between huge fragments eroded from the cliff and on up to a series of hand-and-toe holds cut through a rocky defile. When Turner caught up with her, Emily was standing in front of a maze of pictographs and petroglyphs on the smooth face of the cliff. Look, Jack, stylized birds, the terrace zigzag lightning design you see on old pottery, and these human figures with the funny things on top of the head either corn husks, as they are worn today by the cochare in the corn ceremonials, or parrot feathers brought up from Mexico. It shows there was a contact. Before he could answer, she had bounded away. 
they finally reached the top of the long mesa, and threading the growth of pine and juniper, came to the high eastern promontory overlooking the tangled canyons below, the valley, and the majestic Sangre de Cristos beyond. Emily did not pause for the immense panorama. She stood staring quietly at the crumbled ruins of yet unexcavated Sankawi. The tumbled stones formed a large, rude rectangle, scarcely knee-high, and in many places overgrown with saltbrush, chamisa, and grama grass. To Turner, it had never looked very imposing. On the contrary, Emily said quietly, it's a major ruin that will prove most important when it's finally excavated. Look here, every one of these big stones has been honed to fit. She lifted one to show him. Tufa, light, easy to work, like our own pumice blocks. Swiftly, she built up the whole structure before him. Three terraces of small rooms, those on the inside facing the inner court, one story in height, the second terrace two stories high, and the third outside terrace three stories high, providing a high, solid wall for protection, possibly as many as 300 rooms. And here were the entrance passageways, she said, showing him the areas free of debris on the northwest and southeast corners. I suppose these two big round depressions were tin can dumps, he muttered teasingly again. Kivas, big ones, round and subterranean, of course. She knelt and heaved up stones to reveal a portion of the sunken wall. Big flat tufa blocks with little stones stuck in the mud between the layers. There's roof timbers down there. That can be dated, I'll bet. What's your guess? Not very old, according to the best authorities probably built by people migrating from the Mesa Verde and Chaco regions during the long drought late in the 13th century. Clambering over the crumbled walls, she began scooping out dirt from a shallow runoff. With a sure instinct, she soon brought up a handful of potsherds. The rains always bring these to the surface, she explained, casually. You could collect a bushel of them in five minutes. Potshards. You're pretty good at this stuff, aren't you? He said gruffly. She smiled and suddenly, throwing her arms around him, kissed him lightly on the cheek. Not as good as you, Jack, for bringing me here. Thank you so much. I'll never forget it. Now I, I want to see Tuoyinyi, Chinrinage, and Puye. Everyone. It's so exciting. Not today. It'll take you a month of prowling around. But on the way back, I'll take you around the south face of the mesa. You can see the caves where the cliff dwellers lived before they built the Pueblo up here. Some of the pink walls are still blackened with soot. But it's tough going. There's only little hand-to-toe holds cut in the rock. Think you can make it? I'm not fat and forty, lazy and cautious, she cried. With a flip of her skirt, she vanished over the edge of the cliff. What a curiously intellectual and emotionally immature girl she was, he thought, carefully climbing down behind her. Nine. With the end of Indian summer, the river cleared and slowed. Little patches of paper ice formed over puddles along its banks where loose stock and an occasional deer came to drink. Every morning, the fields of stubble glistened with frost. A small impetus in business kept the tea room going. Artists stopped for tea and cinnamon toast. Santa Fe tourists drove up for Sunday dinner. Even a few valley folk came over regularly. Helen found no encouragement in it. 
her transcendent peace was being worn off by the stresses and strains engendered by Emily's arrival. They were so wary of each other. What manner of mother is this who had abandoned her child in infancy, forsaken her home, and come to live in this lonely wilderness without a backward look? This was the question implicit in Emily's manner. Helen's only answer was the question posed by her own attitude. What idle curiosity or inner compulsion had driven this girl, so independent and well provided for, to seek out a mother after all these years? Each brought back to the other with agonizing clarity the memory of Gerald Chalmers. For days they avoided mentioning him. Then gradually, with careful casualness, they talked of him. Of course I loved your father, at first, Helen said. He was such fun, and we were so young, just children really, but... Oh, I know. Why, even when he was sick and had a couple of drinks, he put us all in stitches, right up to the end. Helen had seen the terrible beginning, Emily the terrible end. But what of the man between? That was the question uppermost in both their minds. Who was the father, the husband, that they had never really known? So Emily sought him in Helen, and Helen sought him in Emily, without finding him. A secret strangeness, wariness, and hostility created an intangible barrier between them neither could break. Nor could Helen close the distance that opened between her and Turner. Self-conscious of their relationship around Emily, he no longer came down to stay the night with her. And this sudden terminable, or and this sudden termination of their physical intimacy, was making him more and more irritable. Yet, if she could not assure him the fault was not Emily's, neither could she bring herself to explain to him the reason for her own change in feeling. Every night she got into bed alone and worried. Then slowly, the effect of her suddenly expanded awareness reasserted itself. Once more, her soul stood in the plentitude of its nameless origin. She realized the imperfect and haunted dimensions through which she had moved all day. She could catch glimpses of herself as of a strange person playing familiar roles. Yes, the emotion she had believed she felt belonged not to her, but to the role she had been playing. Her marriage with Gerald Chalmers had not hurt her as she had imagined for so many years afterward. It had hurt only the woman who had persisted in identifying herself as a tragically disillusioned young bride. So it was with the remorse and guilt that had followed her after abandoning Emily and her present faulty relationship with Emily and Turner. They all belonged to the worldly roles she played, not to the essential selfhood that had been revealed to her that afternoon. She wanted desperately to recapture and hold on to it, constantly in peaceful solitude. But how could she? Every morning, Emily came, demanding to be taken to the Pueblo. San Ildefonso, a few miles from the crossing, was an E-shaped cluster of ancient adobes surrounding two plazas. There was nothing showy about it. It had the same soft aliveness and withdrawn remoteness Helen felt in the Indians themselves. A place to be felt, not seen. She drove with Emily to the outskirts of the Pueblo, then walked with her across the plaza. Luis and Maria lived in two rooms with dirt floors. Maria did all her cooking over the fireplace, carried her water from the stream, and seemed content to do without all the gadgets provided her at the tea room. 
She poured out some of the coffee made from the used grounds she had carried home from Helen's the night before and set the earthenware cups on the table. Why don't you bring over that extra coffee pot instead of using this old iron kettle, asked Emily. Boiled coffee's bitter. This Indian way. Luis was just as stubborn. His fields were a long walk away. To work them, he had a scrawny team, a rusty plow, and innumerable traditions to observe. Certain days to begin planting and harvesting, special ways of selecting his ears of seed corn, a vast ritual procedure from beginning to end. Now, Luis, began Emily, if you'd team up with several others, this Indian way. He flipped the corner of his blanket over his face and disappeared into silence like an ostrich burying his head in the sand. No, neither one of them, nor anyone else Emily talked to, knew the history of the Pueblo, who their ancestors were, where they had come from, nothing. It ended as it always ended. Emily walked out in a huff. They're your friends, and they won't talk. You've been here for years and won't talk either. What's the matter? Helen frowned. It doesn't do any good to ask these people such direct questions. They just don't look at things like we do, she said at last. Maybe because they don't have our sense of time as a linear movement. You know, a horizontal stream flowing out of the past into the future, leaving on its banks deserted ruins, pots and skulls that can be dated and classified. Indian time's different. There aren't any clocks and calendars to chop it into segments, ever smaller and faster. I can't explain it very well. Emily, but to Indians, time has depth instead of movement. Like a great still pool with a life and meaning of its own, as if it were an organic element which helps to fashion our own shape and growth in its unique design of being. Indians aren't in any hurry. They have all the time there is. Nonsense. That's unscientific. There's always a chronological development, and I mean to trace it back to its beginning. Emily was still in a huff when she got into the car, and Helen was glad to get in beside her. She wanted only to go home, to get away from these irritating distractions of a world to which she no longer owed her full allegiance. Despite a twinge of conscience, she was relieved a week later when Emily impulsively bought a second-hand car and announced at dinner that Saturday she was going off on a trip. Now, the beginning of December, where the hell are you going? demanded Turner. The anger in his voice had been a long time breaking through. He was irked because Emily was so extravagant and selfish, living in style at El Mirasol with no thought for her mother's obvious struggle to make both ends meet. He also had been getting more and more jealous of the time and attention Helen showed her. And now her purchase of a car, a convertible at that, for a foolish pleasure trip, seemed the last straw. If it's any of your business, I'm driving over to Indian country. Stop it, Helen interrupted. All this wrangling, even their continual company, had got on her nerves until she could have screamed. Emily is going to do just what she wants to do. She always has. She's going anywhere. Now's the time to go before winter sets in. Turner jerked an old envelope out of his pocket, scribbled a name and address on it. Here, he said gruffly, tell Wheeler at the garage to throw away that threadbare tire on the left back wheel and mount the right back tire on the front. Then buy yourself two snow grip tires for the back. Maybe they'll get you there. They watched her start out next morning in her ridiculously jaunty convertible, dressed in a crimson beret, short jacket, 
scotch plaid skirt, and low shoes, as if bound for lunch in Santa Fe, but driven by a strange compulsion across a desolate windswept plateau to another remote canyon in the folds of the lofty Rockies. 10. When she had driven off, Helen led Turner back into the house to sit in front of the fireplace. It was a quiet morning. Maria and Luis would not come in till afternoon. Now was the time for them to say the things that sometime had to be said. Turner's mind was still on Emily. I wonder how, how far she'll get in that fancy little tin can. It doesn't matter, really, she answered. We're all searching for something. Who knows what? I'm not on a wild goose chase for anything. Maybe that's your trouble, Jack. What do you mean? You've sold your paper for a tidy sum, and you're unhappy running it for someone else. There's no need for you to stay and stagnate from frustration. Why don't you get out and do something more creative? Creative writing? God almighty, I'm sick of that phrase, he exploded. Every pansy and half-assed poet, every rich mother's pipsqueak tense, a studio for the summer to do some creative writing. And all their drivel about put together isn't worth a single inch of the commonest straight reportage in the most stinking newspaper. Helen was not intimidated, but even the best reportage restricts itself to what journalism considers facts, post-mortem facts, dead the instant the headlines hit the street. Oh, wait a minute. She was suddenly conscious again of existing at the hub of that circle ever wheeling slowly around her. In a segment of its perimeter, she saw him as she had never seen him before, a man imprisoned within a superficial and fallacious time span, limited only to those events looming highest on its surface horizon. His whole being keyed to the reportorial realm of the ephemeral present. It was at once the secret of his boyish charm and a weakness hidden from her till now. Don't you see it, Jack? You're obsessed with keeping up with time, with meeting dead lines. Your whole life is dedicated to writing obituaries of events and people. If Turner was surprised at her tone, he was more shocked by such heresy. That sounds literary as hell, and I don't want any of it. You want some coffee, though, she said quietly. He followed her out to the kitchen and thrust some crumpled sheets of paper at her. They were so badly penciled in a childish scrawl that Helen could hardly read the top lines on the first page. Arch-traitor FDR sits in president's chair, smoking that cigarette, jumping taxes, and scheming for war. That's creative writing, Turner said caustically. At least I've never seen quite so many words in the head for an editorial. Mr. Throckmorton, Cyril Throckmorton III. Helen slowly read through the bitter, vindicative pages. Look, Jack, here's a small boy in a wealthy, historic family of the highest social standing. He can't learn to spell. He can't do his arithmetic. He's given tutors, put in obscure private schools. He never does graduate from a college, nor learn a profession. The family dies, leaving its immense wealth and name to an underdeveloped, thwarted, and grown-up child. And now, look, he owns a newspaper. Here are his grade school papers. She gave the sheets back to Turner. There isn't any family to be ashamed of. No teacher will flunk or expel him because of them. He can give full vent to all his feelings. No, he can't, 
Turner threw the pages into the fire. In his own newspaper that he's bought outright, Helen sighed. Jack, get out of this unhealthy situation. Leave Laureha and do something constructive. Marry a lovely young woman and lead a normal life, for goodness sake. There, it had jumped out of her suddenly and unbidden. She could see the quick, hurt, and frightened look in his eyes before it was replaced by a stubborn stare at her. I intend to take you with me, he said quietly. No, Jack, we can't go on together any longer. I just can't. Why? Something's happened inside me. I can't explain it because I don't understand it. But it's changed my whole life. The way I see us, everything. If I I could only explain how it suddenly shook me awake and made everything new and clear. He got up and made a quick turn around the room, returning to face her with a calm, determined look. I understand these emotional upsets. All women have them. Let's don't worry about it. We'll talk about it later when you're rested up, when I come down again. But this isn't a mood. Let me explain. It's... No, he exclaimed angrily. I don't want to hear anything about it. Nothing inside you or out is going to come in between us ever. He flung out the door, slamming it behind him. Eleven. One journeys alone into a far, strange land, and yet one feels he has some time been here before. Empty and illimitable, it keeps spreading out. Nothing about it is consciously familiar. Neither the low, dark hills of cedar and pinion, the unending stretches of gray-green sage, nor the solitary buttes of red sandstone carven into the shapes of the mushroom clouds overhead. Yet one feels that he has known all these shapes and colors and textures long before. Why is this? Does this vast, desolate landscape vibrate so powerfully in subtle wavelengths that it sets quivering in tuned frequency, frequency some mysterious vibration in one's secret self? Or does it only reflect the projections of one's own longings held long in trust? Emily shivered. Her little convertible with its flimsy canvas top was much too, too drafty. Munching on a chocolate bar, she drove on steadily over the unmarked dirt road winding before her. The Four Corners, people called this country because it held the only point in the United States where four states touched. Yet for ages it had been squared to space and time by the sacred mountains of the east, south, west, and north, and rigidly defined by a living faith that had defied the death of centuries. To its earliest arrivals, the Four Corners was the hinterland, the center of gravity of a new world, one of the great magnetic centers of the earth. Emily had traveled long and far to find it. The elaborate glyphs and carvings in the crumbling Maya ruins in the jungles of Yucatan were not enough to hold her. Yet there, for the first time, she felt a rhythm new and unique beneath the country's Hispanic-European veneer. It ruined Boston for her forever. The next summer, on another archaeological tour, she went to southern Mexico. The intricate mosaic work in the temples at Mitla and the colossal ruins of Monte Alban put her off the Mixtecs and Zapotecs. They were too geometrically hard and harsh in tone, mirroring an inflexible stylization that bordered on a sterilization of feeling. She hurried northward next year, a bookish little monster, 
burrowing into the continent's past, in central Mexico it began to come alive. Ignoring her fellow students, Emily trudged to one Aztec pyramid after another. They seemed to be everywhere, behind the railway station at the fashionable Cuernavaca, in the Pedregal, just outside Mexico City, and giving shape to remote weed-grown hills. Emily, the class remonstrated when it caught up with her, you're not seeing anything, you're not having any fun, don't be a grind. She shrugged off their Sunday boat rides at Huachimilco, politely dismissed their handsome Mexican boyfriends. Even the accompanying professors let her alone, regarding her, erratic and spoiled as she was, as a student with originality and initiative who had the bug. Whatever it was, it kept biting Emily deeper. The pyramids, with their heavy, symmetrical shapes of coarse volcanic stones, spoke to her, like the heavy, lava-faced people, with the same subterranean quality. In the great pyramids of the sun and the moon at Teotihuacan, she felt had flowered the culture of the continent. It was not enough. She tore herself away for another year of research into its genesis. If there was a personal element in her search for a motherland, Emily was not aware of it. But her compulsion kept increasing with her emotional insecurity and growing alienation from the aging Chalmers. And when her grandparents died without leaving her the foundations of a personal past on which to build a confident future, Emily committed all archaeology, anthropology, and ethnology to the search. The hoary prehistoric motherland of the New World, whose secret meanings had been forced underground by European conquest, she meant to rediscover. Where was the mythical Aztlan and its seven cavern wombs to the north whence the people had emerged in seven great migrations? What were the roots from which sprang the stalk of the Aztec Empire? Where had been planted the first simple prayer sticks that had grown from the floor of an underground kiva to the summit of the Pyramid of the Sun? Still heading north, she next visited the great ruins of Casas Grandes in Chihuahua. The ancient walled city had an open plaza, T-shaped doorways, but no underground kivas. Instead, several high ceremonial mounds and a ball court, which indicated Aztec derivation. Casas Grandes clearly reflected the influences of two cultural streams, one from the north and one from the south, and was believed to have been the southern end of a migration or trade route between it and a population center in the American southwest. So Emily had come to the Rio Grande Valley. None of the contemporary pueblos and prehistoric ruins she had seen with Helen and Turner were what she sought. Their ancestral inhabitants, she learned, had immigrated from farther north and west. Now alone in a bleak wilderness overhung with gathering clouds, she was journeying as if from a conscious background of historical research into an unconscious realm of instinctual expectation. Chaco Canyon opened before her, a gash in the treeless desert scarcely eight miles long and two miles wide. Here she ran into an archaeologist and his wife who pointed out several ruins. It was early afternoon and growing cold. The storm clouds were thickening overhead. There was no national park office, no camping facility, not even a place where she could obtain a cup of coffee. Snow's coming, the man said, and we're getting out before we get stuck. These roads are impassable when wet. I'd advise you to leave as soon as possible. Nevertheless, Emily could not tear herself away from Pueblo Benito. 
Nothing she had read about it prepared her for its magnificent reality. The largest of the dozen major ruins in the canyon, its semicircular rock walls loomed five stories high, embracing 800 rooms and 35 immense circular kivas. Wandering through it, Emily was entranced by its conception and execution. Pueblo Benito, built a thousand years ago, had been the first great city in the United States. The ceremonial and social center of its first civilization, with a network of roads to outlying settlements, and the northern terminus of the ancient trade route to Casas Grandes, as proven by the hundreds of skeletons of parrots and macaws found in its kivas, and the wealth of precious stones and seashells in its jewelry. There was no doubt in her mind, this is what she had been seeking, the ancestral motherland of Indian America. She could not believe, academic anthropologist though she was, that these Chacoan people once had migrated from Asia across the Bering Strait, bringing this unique culture with them. No, their massive architecture, unique great kivas, complex religious ceremonialism, and exquisite art all had sprung from this native soil. More discoveries about it would be made, and Emily resolved to return for extensive work. Now she felt a flake of snow on her cheek. She finally tore, her, tore herself away, striking out again on the unmarked dirt road. She had met no one since morning except the couple in Chaco Canyon, and in the thickening dusk she was suddenly startled by an apparition looming out of the wash ahead. As it kept rising, Emily saw that it was a man mounted on a scrawny pony. He was swathed in a bedraggled store blanket and had a dark, proud face. He ignored her. A few miles farther, she glimpsed another lone horseman plodding through the sage. And now, like a school of fish running in this vast pelagic plain, appeared more Indians mounted on shaggy ponies or riding in old creaking wagons. Arrogant men with bright headbands holding back their uncut hair. Shapeless, moon-faced women in brilliant velveteen blouses and flounced gingham skirts. Somber children watching her with the wariness of animals. Soon she came to the encampment where they were gathering. Small cooking fires blooming on the sandy plain. Gleaming on dark faces, on blanketed figures huddled against the wind, she could hear an axe biting into cedar, smell mutton ribs dripping grease on the coals. The champ, the stamp of horses, the clatter of single trees, the howl of a dog cowering under a wagon tongue. It was barbaric. It frightened her a little. Yet she remembered reading that when the thunder sleeps and the smell of snow was in the air, it was time for the Navajos to hold their sings. So Emily ignored her fear, her hunger and cold, and walked to a central log and mud hut that probably was the medicine Hogan. Cautiously, she peeked into the doorway, then edged inside. The dust and smoke blinded her for a moment. Then she distinguished the crowd of people sitting and standing around the wall. In the center sat the old gray-haired medicine man, or singer, sprinkling pinches of sand over the body of a woman, stripped to the waist, kneeling before him, all to the sound of an interminable chant. It was too much for Emily, who had eaten nothing all day. The dark, wild faces and the body stench inside the crowded Hogan, the eerie chant and thaumaturgical rite she didn't understand, upset her completely. She stumbled out to vomit. A big, bearded white man came up, looked over her, and boomed out, That sand painting's gone, if that's what you're hanging around here for. Now go down to the post, a piece down to the draw. 
get yourself warmed up. They won't be doing for a long time. Tell the old woman Max sent you. Emily found her way down the draw to the trading post. The slatternly wife of the trader, Miss McAndrews, took her in. There were only two rooms. A big front room was stocked with shelves of canned goods, bolts of velveteen and gigum, barrels and boxes, the walls and rafters hung with bridles, cinches and saddles, and a cracked showcase of exquisite silver and turquoise jewelry. Behind it was a smaller room used as living quarters. Here the woman fried Emily some sock port and warmed up a pot of beans on a greasy wood stove. Choke it down, honey. Get the belly to work in on something if you ain't it, and your insides will straighten out. Emily lay on the filthy cot, waiting for her nausea to pass, and listening to garrulous Miss Mac. Yep, the magic power of the sings got something to do with it, lest you ain't used to it. This is a big one, honey, the old mountain sing herself. Nine nights of her. Come tonight in the last one, you can see the fancy dancers and fire jumpers. From outside came the ruckus blast of cowboy music from the radio in Mac's truck. Indians kept straggling in to buy candy bars, soda pop, and popsicles despite the growing cold. How incongruous it all was. These Indians, with their bedraggled appearance, their obvious poverty and ignorance, were not proud descendants of the Chacoans. They were Navajos, a nomadic tribe which had migrated here centuries after Pueblo Bonito had been abandoned. Mere barbarians who Emily discounted completely. Yet they evidently had their own traditions, for when McAndrews came in to stand warming his hands at the stove, he told her something of the sing going on. The low hill nearby, the Navajos believed to be the axial mountain of the universe, extending above and below this earth world. It had been here when the first people had emerged from the underworld, and the holy people had taught them the meaning of their existence. To the first people's leader, they gave the dance of the plumed arrows and the ceremonial. The leader's name meant reared within the mountain. That's why this ceremonial was called the mountain sing or chant. Yep, the land's a living thing, he boomed, bending his bearded face toward Emily in the lamplight. A living body of creation, and this here mountain is its backbone. Coming right up from the first world of the genitals. Now watch your language, Mac, broke in the woman. You ain't got no call to. And going right up to the last world and the brain of the hull universe, he went on. Of course, it's invisible. This hill's only its earthly image. These navvies know it. They know how to make the power rush up, making everything grow and the stones come alive. Power. And I know it too, girl. They ain't no place in the world's got the magnetic power like this. You can feel it in the ground and twitching in your skin. You wait, girl, you see. He went back out again to listen to the blaring radio in his truck, leaving Emily to sit listening to Miss Mac talk as she squeaked back and forth in a horrible red plush rocker whose stuffing was coming out. Sure enough, Mac's a strange un, honey. Been hitched to him night on twenty years, and I ain't known the likes of him yet. Now I can't say there's nothing queer about the navvies, too. I've seen some funny doings. Max says they make sense. He aims to find out what's causing this mighty powerful vibrating underfoot in these parts. When he does, I aim to get me a new easy chair with some real good rockers. Late that evening, Emily let her curiosity drive her back out. She groped her way to a large corral of spruce branches. 
the dark circle of boughs within which she blanketed crowd had gathered to squat around a great central fire whose flames spurted twenty feet high. Sucking frozen popsicles in the bitter cold, they patiently watched performers make a feather dance and a yucca stalk grow blossoms and swallow huge plumed arrows. Behind these tricks, Emily could feel a growing tenseness that made her apprehensive. Again, she stumbled back to the trading post to warm and rest. And again, wrapped in another blanket, she returned with Mrs. Mack to the magic circle. Midnight had brought bitter cold, and snow was falling upon the leaping flames. Here they come, said Miss Mack. The fire dancers were trotting in. Their naked bodies painted with white and yellowish pink clay, they began to circle ever closer to the scorching heat of the big fire, lighting brands in their hands, then dancing, leaping around and through the fire, whipping each other with flames in wild abandon. Then abruptly Emily felt it gush up with a volcanic roar as if from the genital seed center deep below, sweep up the hot spinal core of the lower worlds and burst before her in a fire mountain of living power spurting upward into the midnight sky. All seemed one living flame, specks of earth and flesh, clay and wood, dancing and cavorting, acting and reacting, sparks and fiery snowflakes fissioning forever and infinitely to release the energy that made this one of the great magnetic centers of the earth. It was too much, too powerful, too primitive, too something. Emily fled back to her filthy cot in the trading post. During all her travels and researches, she had been guided by the accepted theories and rational assumptions of archaeology and anthropology by the solid architecture of the ruins she had seen. Pueblo Benito had materialized as the magnificent climax of her search. Then this fantastic fire ceremony on a naked plain in winter night had broken the logical course of her own thoughts and conclusions. Those cheap sleight-of-hand tricks, naked Navajos whipping themselves with firebrands, leaping through roaring flames, and their primitive belief that the nearby hill was the image of an invisible mountain, the very axis of the universe, all of it was too irrational, unbelievable, yet her seething resentment could not dismiss its effect upon her. She lay sleepless, listening to Mrs. Max snoring, fighting against a tide that sought to carry her back into unplumbed, archaic time. No, Emily wanted only to get back to her sound academic studies, her own logically developing thesis. Daylight emerged, slowly in an enveloping mist. It was Sunday morning, and Miss Mack was in no hurry to get up and start the fire in the stove. Emily was irked by her delay. "'Keep your shirt on, honey. The road's covered with snow. You'll have to wait for Mack to find somebody with a truck to make tracks for you and pull you out to get stuck.' In a little while, the radio in Mac's truck began to sound. Then he banged open the door and burst in, shouting, What do you know? The Japs have bombed Pearl Harbor, just now on the radio, on a Sunday, too. The two women stared back at him in silence. In Hawaii, you know, Jap planes come over in swarms, bombs falling everywhere. The yellow sons of bitches, war, that's what it means. We're right in it at last. Panic enveloped Emily. Oh, I've got to get home right away. Now, I can't wait for coffee. Where's home? demanded Mac. Emily's mind was blank. Unconsciously, she blurted out, New York. 
crowded, civilized New York where she'd be safe in the Chalmers' luxurious apartment. The trader shrugged. A far piece, but you sure don't belong here. An hour or more later, Emily drove out behind a heavy truck. She flung a last look at the smoking encampment. It seemed the last vanishing image of America's archaic past. This was December 7, 1941. Another new world had opened to its primitive inhabitants, and all America itself had been explosively thrust into the future. <laughs>